In this episode, we're joined by author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, Raymond Luck. He's the CEO of Hockey Stick and Flow Ventures. During our chat, he shared some of the biggest lessons he's learned in his 25 years of entrepreneurship and discusses the biggest mistakes founders make when pitching their companies. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Launch AMA. I am your host, Sam Chan, as always. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everybody out here joining us live and listening to the podcast after. Uh, today, our guest is a Raymond Luck, CEO of Hockey Stick. Um, so, yeah, just to get things started, I was going to make a hockey joke, but then I lost it. Good. <laughs> there's, there's literally a hockey stick behind me. So, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like, tell us how you got your hockey career started. <laughs> you know, I've never played actual ice hockey, but I, I do have a story to tell you. Um, I did one, one time give myself back spasms, which is a very common hockey injury. Yeah. I was, I gave myself back spasms playing, um, uh, EA sports hockey, like on the, on the computer. No, <laughs> seriously. No way. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it is possible, you know, when you really, really get into it. So that's, that's my hockey story. But, um, I actually do love hockey. I, I spent 20 years in Montreal where I became uh, a Habs fan and, um, you know, just part of the culture in Quebec, like you have to be a hockey yeah. fan. So yeah, I uh, definitely love hockey and, and love uh, hockey stick growth and love the J curve uh, even more. Yeah. It's good. You said Habs fan and not Leafs fan. Cause it could be a yeah. very uh, short AMA. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, you know, I live, in, I live in Toronto by the way. So I am the, the one dude in Toronto who is a Habs fan and uh, it's um, but it's different. I'd say it's like, you know, it's different in every city, of course, and Vancouver has got a great team and a great, great hockey culture in Quebec. It's, it's so part of the, like, like when I, when I did business in, in Quebec and was like learning French and the one gateway to Quebec culture for me was speaking hockey French. So hockey French mm -hmm. is, you don't need to really have an extensive vocabulary, but you need to be able to talk about hockey and then whether you're talking to the premier or, you know, investment banker or the Saint-Hubert uh, delivery dude, you, that whole culture opens up to you. So I, I really enjoyed that. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'd love to dive deeper into the hockey talk, but before that's we awesome. do that, why don't, uh, why don't you just introduce yourself for everybody that's, you know, meeting you for the first time here. Um, you know, Raymond's a, a multi-time entrepreneur as well, as well as an investor. Um, so yeah, like, let's just hear a little bit about your origin story. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I won't, I won't tell you my whole life story in real time. Uh, we only have an hour, but yeah, basically, honestly, like crazy background. I used to be a musician. My original career was mm -hmm. classical music. That's why I went to school to do um, uh, piano and composition. And then I started somehow when I graduated, started a software company and, and really, you know, had that healthy naivete of like, oh, this doesn't seem too hard to start a software company. And, uh, you know, everybody who's an entrepreneur on this call knows that. Um, that if, if you actually know how hard things are, you probably wouldn't do it. Um, so yeah, I started a bunch of different software companies starting in Montreal, um, uh, had some um, early failures, had some early successes, uh, dabbled in um, angel investing when I lived there, started a fund called Year One Labs, which I'm technically still the managing director of, but we're winding it down after our last um, exit, which was an IPO. Really happy about that. Um, and then um, moved back to Toronto, started another company, um, uh, sold that company in order to put our eggs in one basket of starting hockey stick, which I'll tell you about. Um, I also own another company called Flow Ventures, which is a financial advisory company uh, based out of Montreal, but you know it's across the country now. 
So I'd say like my, my entrepreneurial career has been pretty varied from, you know, angel, VC, entrepreneur, um, venture funded, self-funded, um, successes, failures, uh, wrote a book recently. Um, and, you know, the thing I'm, I think overall, I'm, I've turns out that I'm really passionate about is fine entrepreneurial finance. I really love and care about how founders raise money. It's totally backwards, broken, bad, you know, terrible. It still <laughs> is. And, uh, that's what I care about. So here I am. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you hit, like, the bingo card, like, you know, consulting, services, investing, product. Um, you've kind of done them all, um, but cool. So just a little bit of housekeeping before I forget too hard. If uh, For those of you listening live in on this, if you do have questions, just pump it in the Q&A. Like, Raymond and I are just going to talk. Um, we're going to have a good conversation. We're going to hit up on some some topics about what, what he's passionate about, especially. Um, but, yeah, like, just to kind of dive into it, like, what what is Hockey Stick, just so everybody knows? Hockey Stick is, we call it funding as a service. So it's a platform that helps founders raise capital, venture, angels, loans, grants, basically any kind of money that's out there that there's high friction to get, which unfortunately is all money. Um, mm-hmm. Very little people just randomly emailing you, emailing you checks, unless yep. it's your customers. Um, so we, we exist to take the friction out of fund, fundraising of, of any kind. And it's different depending on the situation. Um, but the, you know, joining means that um, whether you're, whatever type of funding you're raising, you have advice, you have access to people. I'd say in venture in particular, the biggest issue is access. So we, the, probably our superpower is getting entrepreneurs meetings with VCs that, that they can't get access to. So I'm not just talking about the fancy top tier, you know, yeah, we, yeah, we, we can do that as well. But a lot of entrepreneurs just don't know who's out there because you're, you're building your company, you're not doing a PhD in venture capital. So, you know, whereas we live and breathe relationships um, with VCs. So, um, you know, we, we help open doors, get meetings, because we know that when entrepreneurs get meetings, their magic takes over, you're going to do well, um, you're going to build relationships, raise money. It's a bit different with loans and grants. With loans, it tends to be more kind of financial advisory, getting your, you know, your books cleaned up and, and, and really knowing you know, how lenders think, banks, um, you know, specialty kind of fintechs now, uh, platforms, private lenders, and then grants is a whole other thing that it exists in every country, especially in Canada. And that's a whole other, um, it, it's a skill set. I, I always tell people never be good at grants because if you are, you, you could have been good at something else, which is building your company. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about, about uh, hockey stick. Awesome. And then how, how did you guys actually get started? Like, was it because, you know, with your prior companies or maybe companies you were investing in, um, like you had so much trouble with the whole process and that kind of stirred it up or what was the impetus? Yeah. I mean, it actually started with um, me being, you know, me being frustrated with how um, private companies raise money and, and being on both sides. Cause you know, I've been running a fund, being an angel and just kind of seeing like, Oh, wait a minute, is this how decisions are made? Is this how funding decisions are made? It's totally not data driven, you know. It's not necessarily rational. It's it's kind of broken considering how many, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, or trillions of dollars globally are invested in private companies. It's very back of the napkin, you know, back of the napkin, non digital. It still is for the most part. So that was a niche I wanted to scratch. And then I knew a lot of VCs, and they said, "Hey, we've got a whole bunch of problems on our side too, trying to find deal flow, track it." 
we know it's not data driven. So, you know, please start a company. We'll be your first customers. And, and, and we started, I think, like a lot of people where you've got a vague idea of the problem space, but at the very beginning, you don't know what the product is or you don't really, you don't have product market fit yet. And so we did a lot of experimentation just to figure it out. But, but it started with, you know, like, I think the rule is always pick a big problem. And I know we picked the big problem because it's still not solved. There's still really annoying to raise money and, um, and we're chipping away at it. Awesome. Awesome. And then, so, so just to give everybody kind of an example, um, what's the ballpark of the size of, of hockey stick today? Um, are you guys a distributor team, decentralized team or how does, yeah, it's like, we're, we're probably a little little over 20 people, um, Mm -hmm. distributed. Um, yeah, there's, there's people in Montreal, there's people in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we're mostly in Toronto, but that's probably going to change, you know, for COVID reasons and remote and just rethinking business. Um, I'd say that, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because culturally we were always a, everyone in one room, we were literally, you know, Front Street, Toronto at 111. Um, and that was our, you know, how we started. We loved it. And when COVID hit, we quickly learned that although we didn't want to be remote 100%, <laughs> we really are productive distributed. So we, we kind of um, are hybrid now where we get together, you know, once every week, once every couple of weeks, um, then we go away. And, and that may change, right? I think that, you know, I love remote, but also I'm sick of my house. So it, you know, we could be three days a week in the office. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, for sure. And, and definitely I want to want to talk a little bit more about HR and hiring, because I think that that really ties in with, with the reason people fundraise. Right. But yeah. before we kind of talk about the, the hiring and team culture and that aspect, let's just talk a little bit about um, your customers, right. In the past few years, obviously with the pandemic, most of us have, not been alive since the last pandemic. Um, so this is all new for, for, for pretty much everybody listening in, right? Um, from the investing point of view and maybe from your customer's point of view, like what has changed about the state of investing that you can kind of talk about? You know, it's funny, like, uh, I mean, listen, some, some, one big thing that's changed that we wouldn't have known this uh, a couple of years ago is the, that the venture industry and, and private investments could happen over Zoom, right? So that, you know, I think that was that was uncertain in the first quarter of 2020, whether or not all deals would dry up. Because re- remember, for a long time, uh, it was, there was that hundred kilometer, hundred mile rule where you know if I can't drive to you, I'm not going to invest in you. And it yep. still does exist, but um, COVID really disrupted that. So now you see more global global flows, but also within Canada, right? You see people who only invested in Toronto now investing in Winnipeg. Because it doesn't matter. So I think that that's always a good thing for innovation, always a good thing for capital. Um, so I think that's the big thing that changed. And mm-hmm. you know, for me, it's like I, I'm a lot more picky now about do I need to hop on a plane and go to San Francisco or New York? And you know, I love it. I, I, of course, I'll do it. But I'm I'm a lot pickier. It's like I don't actually need to do that. So let's let's be efficient with our time and and you know talk over Zoom and we'll meet when we need to. That's probably the biggest behavioral change. Yeah, I'd say, you know, if I think back to when I started, even if the last 20, you know, I've been doing this 25 years. Um, and I think the bad news is that honestly, not that much has changed in, in the way venture capital is, is done. I mean, it's, it's partly, it's partly a function of the model, right? It, these are like long-term, you know, 10 year, seven to 10 year commitments on funds. Um, it's, 
you know, there's a certain model and risks and returns that are built in. Um, you know, there, there's definitely people disrupting that model on the edges. But in general, if I think back to um, how I would raise money today as a startup versus 10 years ago or 20 years ago, you know, yes, in Canada, there's more, um, more availability of capital. So that's probably a bigger change for us. But if you were in, you know, Boston or New York or the Valley, how you go about chain, uh, raising venture has not really changed. It's still relationships, pitch deck, you know, traction, you know, that whole thing. And there's some really good parts of that that I think are that make the model work. But there's, I think there's also a lot of inefficiencies that um, I think a lot of good companies don't get funded. Um, so I think that hasn't really changed. Um, you know, again, never say never, right? There's there was maybe you know six or seven years ago when the um, when some of the new um, regulatory changes happened with uh, equity crowdfunding, right? You guys have yeah. heard of that, um, but you probably don't know that many startups that have been funded through equity crowdfunding, right? So that was yeah. an example that, in theory, I looked at that and said, "Hey, there's, there could be billions of dollars of new capital from smaller retail investors. Amazing! It's all good, and it means that if you can't get the attention of that, you know." juicy VC that you want, hey, who cares if you have millions and millions of dollars out there from people who believe in your company, but that, that, that just didn't come to pass, right? Very, very, very few people have raised money that way. So it's going back to what I was saying, a lot of things honestly haven't changed. Right. And then speaking a bit about the first part when you mentioned geography, I know that, that previously prior to COVID, um, geography was a great excuse like, oh, I, I just can't reach where you are. Can't, can't connect with the founders and therefore like we don't uh, we don't invest in X country or companies from X country. Right. Has that has that changed because of the Zoom meetings and now people are more open to international or is it more kind of what you described? Like, OK, Toronto investors are willing to do Winnipeg or Vancouver, but they'll still shy on like a Bosnian <clears throat> tech company or something like that. Yeah, I think, listen, it's, it's part of the human nature, right? Like like if you think about if you're a VC you are paid to scout great deals. So um, you can go on PitchBook or you can go on Briefton and, and look up deals and kind of like going on LinkedIn, but you're not really adding value. So you, you want to add value over a career as a, as a partner um, at, a, at a venture firm by having a great reputation, having a great network. That's your, your secret sauce. So it's human nature that that network, you know, unless you're top, top, top tier is going to be probably concentrated in, you know, Boston or Toronto or Waterloo or Vancouver. And, and that's, again, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that, that what, um, you know, COVID and Zoom changed was the, it, it somewhat definitely relaxed those rules within country. Um, I think in Canada in particular, um, you know, that's helped because if you're, you know, especially East Coast VC, there's, there's no tax reasons that you shouldn't be investing in Canada. And it's less competitive, right? Than where you are. Um, there's, you know, still more, more, more startups and and great startups scale ups now, um, chasing, um, you know, more, more chasing fewer dollars relative to like a, a big U.S. city. Um, so, I, like, I think that there's that's changed somewhat. Um, I'd say that Canada also, because the ecosystem here is developing. Another thing that's opening the border up more is just better quality companies that just took time to mature. Now people are going public, they're, they're becoming unicorns or narwhals or whatever you call it. Um, they're just scaling, raising hundreds of millions of dollars in a round. So I think that naturally, you know, 
That's the greed factor. If I see that in Estonia, I'm going to be really interested in Estonia, right? And all kinds of cool things are happening in Estonia. I didn't pick that out of a hat. Um, so there's, I think there's, there's some of that, but, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's not like um, there's some, you know, place where you go post your pitch deck and then you get funded, you know, the algorithm tells you, I mean, yeah, I yeah. wish, right. It's still very much, and this is why I wrote a book on, on pitch decks and why storytelling is still important is you still need to communicate your story, especially at the early stage when you're not reporting quarterly earnings, right. You're, you're selling a dream more than your metrics until you, you know, start to scale. So if you can't sell your dream effectively, you're not going to get the funding you're looking for. Right. And then just uh, hopping on two of the things you said um, about fundraising and how it hasn't changed. I mean, one of the first things is is building a network. And, and one of the things that we're obsessed with at launch is helping our companies become what we call investor ready. So it doesn't mean necessarily that you're actively going after your seed or your A or whatever. Yeah. But you're preparing for that. And part of that, is, of course, is the, is the storytelling. Um, but from a very practical perspective, and one of the questions that I have sitting here um, is, is like, you know, you're the CEO of your company. You're, you might be a building product. You might be doing sales. You might be doing uh, customer validation, whatever it is you're doing. Um, and of course, like part of it is like your story may not have been fully formed yet, right? Because you're still discovering. Um, at the same time, there's generally speaking, a hundred different things you can be working on. What do you see as the balance in your time spent and your effort spent between going out and making sure that, you know, frankly, you're at talks like this, for example, mm. but I'm sure everybody that's listening on this call, they got, they got tickets, they got support tickets, they got emails to get to, yeah. they got code to write. They got lots of things they could do. Like, how do you, what do you recommendations do you have for that kind of time spent? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you hit on a, you know, the, the, the big, the big conundrum and the big challenge of fundraising, right? It's in order to be the most effective fundraiser in the world, you need to do it full time, right? And you get those reps in, you need to learn, right? Not everyone is, is a, you know, has a MBA in finance and, and also is a genius at marketing and storytelling and strategy. And, you know, you, you can't be everything, but that's the assumption. I think that's the big challenge of fundraising for founders is you, if you want to be good at it, you have to do it full time. If you do it full time, your company goes under. So you're going to have to make compromises. And I think that, you know, one of the things I'd say that is, is really important, you know, about getting investor ready and storytelling is don't get ready too soon, right? So yes, there's going to be funding in your future. But, you know, one of the things that, that I learned uh, early on is when you start pitching, you have to have a foundation of stuff you know, right? There's going to be stuff you don't know, right? Of course, seed uh, pitch decks and series A even, there's a lot of unknowns. Your, you know, how you're going to scale your, you know, fine, uh, fine tooth kind of um, unit economics, even who your next few hires are going to be. You, you just can't know that at your, at your stage. The problem with pitching and doing newsletters and putting in, you know, metrics out there is you have to be very careful not to um, get into this reporting cycle where you're over-promising, where you just don't know yet. It's, it's also the, the, one of the biggest pitfalls of raising too much money too early. So think of it this way, that if you're, um, if you're trying to experiment in an area you really care about, probably for the first while, you know, three months, six months, nine months, could be 18 months, could be two years, you're, you're wandering, right? You have to, you have to earn it. It's, it's sort of like, you know, I read this great uh, biography of uh, Thomas Edison and, you know, 
the number, the tens of thousands of iterations that he did on filaments in a light bulb. You know, he wasn't, he didn't invent the light bulb. He didn't invent the filament either. He just invented the longer lasting light bulb. So the idea of putting in those reps, um, you, if you try to do that too early, you start reporting on, hey, we have 10 new visitors to the website and it's gone up, you know, 5% since last uh, month, or um, we, we signed these three LOIs and it becomes kind of random because you want to spin a story, you know, like, like rare is the entrepreneur that says, hey, here's my newsletter. It's all bad news. You know, we experimented with five, five things. They all didn't work. Um, you know, we made a hire, the hire didn't work out. Um, we started with this pr pricing model. It turns out it's the wrong pricing model. And uh, the good news is we've completely failed this month. So we can start again with a fresh set of you know, experiments, right? That's the Edison way of like, yes, this, this filament burned out. So <laughs> that's one thing that's crossed off, but nobody really wants to hear that. And nobody wants to say that. So don't put yourself in a position of <laughs> having to report you know, as if you know, when you don't know, it's much better sometimes to hide, you know, mm -hmm. um, that's why like stay on your ramen budget. If you can hide as long as you can until you know something of a core, maybe it's only your beachhead. It's only like one vertical and you want to expand later, but probably the biggest mistake in funding is, is, you know, naturally when you pitch promising that, yeah, here's, it's going to hit the hockey stick curve, but you're nowhere near that. And you shouldn't be, and you got to earn your intellectual property, earn your future growth. But while you're earning it, um, yes, you need to have money to survive and pay salaries and things, but maybe that's not the time to be fundraising, right? You fundraise at certain inflection points when, hey, we actually figured out, you know, five out of seven things and we need money because we want to prove the sixth and seventh thing. And there may be 10 others after that. But um, it's too easy to get sometimes lost in like, I want money, I want, I want money. Um, mm -hmm. Once you've got money on your cap table and, and you've got investors, even if they're the greatest investors on earth, naturally, they're going to be saying, hey, Sam, you said you were this kind of business. So naturally, I want to see you go for it. And if you go back next quarter and say, you know what, we <laughs> completely abandoned that business. We did a massive pivot. That may be the absolute best thing you should do as a founder. But it does put a lot of mental pressure on you when you've got investors and people you've made promises to. Mm -hmm. And then, so it definitely sounds like um, you're you're on the side that it sometimes it is too early to be fundraising or too early to join. I don't know any specific program could be an incubator, could be an accelerator, whatever whatever that is. Um, what are indicators that you're looking for? Like you know, putting again yourselves in the seat of the founder. That okay, like now it's time to start framing that story. Yeah, like I think. You know, listen, like, like there's a lot of paradoxes, right? Of being a founder, right? It's the idea of like, we, we all have this flaw and this superpower of like having opposites, opposite concepts in our head. So yeah. it is tough because, you know, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. So I, I'm an optimist. I'm a believer. So when I look at the same set of numbers or metrics that you might, you know, a non-entrepreneur right. look at, I see amazing billion dollar potential. Somebody else may see like, no, this is not working. So you do, you do have to be careful that, you know, we're, we're all optimists. Otherwise, we wouldn't start companies. But, but the, the advantage of optimism is you need that energy and creativity. The disadvantage is you can not know. You can, you can convince yourself something's working when it's actually not working yet. So, you know, I, I don't have a really good answer for that because I am an optimist. So I'm mm -hmm. programmed already. Um, 
this is where good advisors come in, um, a good coach, mm-hmm. therapist, friend, mom, yeah. anything. Somebody who's a bit of a skeptic to call your bullshit. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're not outsourcing like, do I have my strategy to them? Because they're not going to know. But, um, you know, a good friend uh, or good coach will, will do this for you. Um, so, you know, long-winded way of answering, but I'll say, <laughs> you know, when you don't, when you're not trying to convince somebody except yourself, I think you yeah. know when growth is, for example, like growth is consistent. So you're, you're let's say, adding users, like even if it's, if it's a free, freemium product, users are signing yeah. up not because you went on LinkedIn and spammed everybody and said, please sign up. I'll give you yeah. a $5 Amazon certificate. But because people are naturally finding you, um, I think you I think we all know as founders that kind of instinct, like, oh crap, 10 people signed up yesterday. I don't even know those people. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you 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 start to get some organic growth. If you're in if you're in B2B or enterprise, it's you know, you're, you're just sales, 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 right? That's why a lot of yeah. especially in Canada, a lot of um, you know, startups and tech companies are are actually enterprise kind of B2B companies. Um, and I love those companies because you're it is possible to sell products before you build them. I have done it many times. And, and so those are really good early indicators. It must be working because I just sold a million dollars of licenses. Now I guess we have to go build the thing. Um, harder with consumer, but I, 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 like, I think you know, right? You, you know, like here's, here's mm-hmm. a, another example. Let's say you've got a consumer, like a you know, SaaS, personal productivity SaaS app or something. Um, if you have a thousand people sign up or 10,000, uh, but they're all from around the world. They're all different types of people. Some are small business, some are freelancers, some are Uber drivers, some are senior citizens. Those same 10,000, like that to me says, you don't have it yet. If you have even 1,000, you know, grandmothers sign up, you've got something, right? Because you've got a more of a consistent cohort of people. And I think once you've got some consistency, the number doesn't matter. It's that it's you're, you're, you're starting to get proof that a, a group of people, a homogenous group of people um, is starting to believe what you do, putting their time, maybe their money. That's the beginning of when you should, you should, you should think about telling a story because you actually have a story. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I, I think to be very practical and you must see this a lot at hockey stick because you, you got so much data and so many different companies doing different things. Like, is, is that kind of investment FOMO for lack of a better term, right? Yeah. Like you see company A and maybe they're in the same sector as you, they don't have a line of code and they just raised a million dollars or whatever. And you're yeah. kind of like sitting here going, huh, yeah. should I be doing that? Yeah, listen, like, like I literally sent an email to um, <laughs> um, one of our entrepreneurs today saying, dude, I really hate to do this to you, but you know, a direct competitor just raised money. And, and, I, and I said, I hate to do this to you because I personally hate getting that email. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's more personal. It's like psychological than anything. It's yeah. like you said, hey, there's a, you know, five direct competitors to hockey stick that just raised, you know, hundred million dollars. That hurts. Right? It just mentally, emotionally hurts because you, whether it's FOMO or whether you just feel threatened and you, you're just fear, right? So, yeah. so nobody likes that. But on the other hand, you know, I've lived through enough cycles. Like I remember like eight years ago, I think we had a, a direct competitor to one of my businesses like could not be more direct. And they were in the Valley, we're, we're here in Canada and they raised, uh, I think like 15 million US. And of course I felt like total crap. And um, at the same time I said like, hey, you know, there's no magic, right? Like just because you raise money doesn't mean anything happens. And, 
And they, they went up and they went down and they went out of business before I even knew what was going on. So, you know, I always remind, use that example to remind myself that, you know, raising money is not the goal. It's, but it's psychologically, we all, of course, we all want to be in the front page of TechCrunch, you know, um, getting credit for having raised this much money. Um, but I always like joke with people that like, like how many people in this call have a mortgage? Like probably everybody, like I do. Um, you know, especially if you live in Toronto or Vancouver, nobody um, posts on Facebook. Hey, I just got a mortgage. I got the biggest mortgage. I got a $5 million mortgage. You only got one. I'm five times more valuable than you. My house is potentially worth five times more than you. Nobody says that. Right. But, but raising money is exactly the same thing. It's, it's, you know, uh, equity and debt at the end are the same, you know, equity is more expensive, um, but equity is there for a reason. So I, I think that it, it's hard to deprogram because of course, you know, some like when we build companies, sometimes there are 10 years in the future, any kind of benefit. Um, so these little wins along the way mean something, but, but I'd say that like, like if you, if you're starting your company <coughs> to raise money, you're doing it for the wrong reason. And, you know, you have to remember that, that, uh, the majority of companies on earth don't raise private equity or venture capital. The majority of tech companies on earth do not raise venture capital. Right. I think, you, you, I don't know if you saw MailChimp just, I think they were just acquired by Intuit, I think for mm -hmm. like $19 billion. Um, that is not a venture funded company. They might be the exception, but that's a company that built something, you know, slow and steady. And I guarantee you along the way, they were, they were made fun of every single day of their lives. They're not, having raised as much money as Clavio or whoever else is their direct competitor. Um, right, but, right. you know, you, you have to be a bit of a contrarian and that, uh, like, and don't, don't get me wrong. I love VC. I whole started a whole business to enable venture. I, I, I think the model is, um, you know, obviously you need it for innovation, but try to get rid of the baggage around, like, you know, in particular, like if you fundraise, you're going to pitch, let's say 20, 30 VCs. And, if you get one of them, like if you raise your round, you're probably going to have 27 rejections, right? And one to three yeses. But if you take everything to heart, you're going to get 27 people telling you why your business sucks and why your strategy is wrong. And, and there'll be 27 different reasons why your strategy sucks. So if you just absorb it all and you try to create this Frankenstein monster of a business that everyone loves, you're just going to fail. So at a certain point, you have to be a contrarian and say, you know what? I know that 99 people turn me down. Uh, I only need one to say yes, and um, I'm going to I'm going to disprove everybody. Right? You got to have that. Yeah, for sure. And then just talking a little bit about the other side, I want to talk about uh, bootstrappers. Right? Yeah. I think we've talked a little bit about how you know at some point companies are too early to raise, and maybe they're looking at the wrong target. The goal being fundraising instead of you know building an awesome product. Yeah. Then there's companies that have built a pretty good product and really ought to be looking at funding as an option to make it into a great product. And yeah. because they're stuck on like, you know, I'm the boss of my own company. I yeah, don't want to sure. split my equity that yeah. they haven't really considered it. What are some indicators on the other side for, for these types of companies? And I'm not describing anybody in particular, so don't worry about that. Um, but, but for, for these types of companies, what are, what are like indicators that, Hey, maybe I should look at fundraising. Maybe I should you yeah. know, focus on this part of the company. Yeah, listen, like I know I have friends who who built businesses and only raised money after they were north of 10 million in revenue, profitable, and and then they raised, you know, actually raised private equity, not even VC. So there's many 
you know, many ways to do it. But I'd say that, you know, like I always use kind of just the simple principle, like, you know, we're all capitalists, hopefully. Um, and um, the just use the greed principle, right? If, if you're if you just want a job and you just, you know, that's fine. Get it. You know, lots of people have jobs and and, um, the, you know, that's that's fantastic. Right. Number one, know yourself. Right. So if you're if you care about just security and income and even a lot of income, then that's great. But I think if you're if you want to grow something and you're thinking about when to raise money, just follow the greed principle. The greed principle just will simply state that um, I let's say I have a million in revenue right now and we're you know 15 percent profitable, let's say. But um, I want two million next year. So so if you're greedy, not not one point one or one point two million next year, but double, then you ask yourself, great, I'm greedy. I want double. How do I get there? And if the answer is, oh. I just have the same team, same product, and just with the passage of time, we're going to naturally double, then don't raise money because you can be greedy and you don't need any help. And obviously, you should own 100% of the pie. Um, let's say you need um, you know, 50,000 bucks to do that. Well, get a loan or you know, two and a half credit cards or something. And so you, 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 you just raise the money that you need in order to be greedy. So not for survival, that's different. That's... <coughs> You know, I need my emergency wage subsidy. I need my tax credits, whatever. That's great. But if if you can grow and and you follow the greed principle, that might mean though that in order to be really greedy, like you literally have a territory that nobody is in. You're in the adjacent territory. You know you can own it, but you're going to need a million dollars to do that. That's going to tell you when to raise money and what type of money to raise you have a specific um, need for it. So mm -hmm. you're, you're not raising money to find a whole, find a business. You already have a business, an organic business. But the, one of the things that people do when they raise money, they kind of raise money just in case. And they think that by raising 5 million, like my competitor did, I'm automatically going to be able to grow, let's say five times. But that's not true at all. It depends on your business. If, if you've already tapped out every Google ad and LinkedIn ad, um, you know, humanly possible, you spending another incremental five million on Google Ads is, may have zero incremental benefit to you. You have to have something to do with that money. Maybe it's uh, buying another company, right? That has revenue. That's a perfectly legit way to grow. Maybe it's, um, you know, maybe it's like R and D. I mean, that's a lot of um, a lot of millions go into R and D that often don't don't go anywhere if it's done for the wrong reason. But what I'm saying is that you have to have a very specific um, use of that money. It's not, well, fuzzy logic means if I have more money, I guess I spend more money on ads, I get some PR, I get some marketing, I sprinkle some magic pixie dust, and then growth magically happens. Um, a lot of money is wasted that way. If you know specifically that I've got three salespeople, they generate half a million each, I want to double, I want to hire three more salespeople, you know exactly how much their salary, commission, benefits, overhead costs. And... If you have that kind of business, by the way, probably you can raise debt, right? Because you have revenue, um, you know, banks and lenders will be happy, ha will happily lend you that money. You own 100% of your business and um, you control the risk. For sure. And that's, that's brilliant, actually. Um, yeah. So speaking, speaking about different types of funding, and, and here's how I kind of preface it. There's, there's obviously different ways that a company gets money. Yeah. Of course, the most obvious one being your customers and revenue. And then there's fundraising, which we've talked a bit about. Uh, there's uh, you know debt financing, which we haven't talked about. And then there's grants, which we 
we yeah. mentioned. Um, and so, but all of these kind of types of funding, like all kind of start with some sort of storytelling, right? And so where I want to kind of focus on a little bit is you wrote a book called a leap, Pitching a Leap of Faith. Um, and so obviously pitching is one of your passions and, and I think pitching and I'm using pitching and storytelling kind of, kind of synonymously, um, um, everything kind of starts with that story. Do you want to just describe a little bit about like, well, obviously I don't want you to give away the whole book, um, but but like describe a little bit about what, what you're kind of framing up to and how it kind of touches each of those types of, of potential funding. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not going to read the entire book now to you. Uh, it'll be like bedtime stories. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been told I've got a voice that puts people to sleep. So, um, uh, but the, the reason I, I can kind of summarize it by saying, like, I called it a leap of faith because in the end, I think storytelling, you know, especially for fundraising, but it's the same whether you're friend, founder raising or you're selling, is you're basically telling a story and you're asking the other person to, uh, take a leap of faith with you, right? If if um, if you have something so obvious, like if you sell a commodity, you don't need to tell the story. There's a bunch of mangoes sitting here. Here's the price for a mango. You go buy it, you know, end of story, um, literally. But if you're doing what I do and probably what everyone on this um, call and podcast are doing, you're building something new, then what you're really selling when you're pitching is you're selling a vision of the future. So you're saying, hey, I'm over here. You know, I'm the team and the person that's going to take this leap. Um, there is a gap. There's a there's a there's a chasm, and on the other side is the future. Amazing growth, um, changing the world, cure for cancer, whatever it is that you're pitching. And I get to make a leap, but there is a hole in the middle, right? It's not just a walk in the park. And um, I need um, whether it's money, I need resources. I want to close a sale. I want you to be my pilot customer. In order to make them feel like they want to take that leap of faith, you have to do two things. One is you need to paint a picture of the future that they, that they really care about. So they have to want your product. They have to believe in, you know, maybe I, I don't really invest in cannabis companies, so don't sell me that. Or I don't understand what NFTs are. So when I do, I'll invest. But until then, I don't know. So you have to paint a picture of the future that people believe in. But you also have to make them believe that you can make that leap. Because if they think it's impossible, they're not going to help you, right? Because why would they? You're going to fail. So you have to give them a story that says, there's a leap. I've got a team and technology or some other thing that's giving me a running start. And I'm going to make that leap. Your money, your support, or you joining my company is going to give me more, more momentum, allow me to leap further, and we're going to get there together. And then, you know, whether you're part of the team You'll get options or equity. If you're an investor, you'll get a return. We'll do a big IPO. Um, that's that's really what the book is about. Um, and and then breaking it down, like I'd say that the thing I do a bit differently than other people is there's a lot of pitch deck advice, which is advice really. It's advice on how to get noticed by VCs and what do VCs want to hear. And I personally hate that because if you're building a business for what VCs want to hear. Unless you're literally building VC software, which by the way, don't do because I tried that. It's a hard business. Um, you have to build your own business, right? And and their job is literally to fund businesses. It's not like no matter what the advice is out there, they don't want you to bend your whole strategy to be attractive to VC. So that's the worst thing you can do. Your job is to be attractive to your customers so that you realize the vision of your own company. 
So what I try to do is focus on um, a, a simple but rigorous framework based on thousands and thousands of pitch decks and data that I looked at that um, doesn't, it's not a paint by numbers. I do this and you'll get, you know, this valuation, but it's kind of a framework that is a framework for learning so that when you get those 30 different um, contradictory pieces of feedback on your pitch deck, you'll have a framework to say, okay, these things I don't, I'm not going to listen to these things make sense and they're going to help me improve. Um, It's probably the number one frustration that founders who pitch say is, Hey, I just pitched 20 people. They all told me opposite things. So who's right? And my answer to them is you have to have your own opinion. And I wrote the book to try to give people that framework. And of course, you know, at the end of the day, um, they they do end up building better pitch decks. Um, But I think after they stop pitching, they still retain that framework, helps them sell, helps them, you know, the story is always changing. Yeah. From the, from the maybe readers, it could be customers or companies working with hockey stick, whatever it is. Where do you see people have the biggest like issues, not the right word, but like what, yeah. what's the biggest, the hardest hurdle for to overcome in terms of yeah. building that proper story? Yeah. Listen, I've been thinking a lot about this recently that there's this concept I call if then, and, and so let me explain it. So at the, at the, at the heart of every startup pitch and pitch deck, it's, it's like a big claim, like, or a big, like, we think the world's going to change this way or you know, we've got this world-beating technology that's going to disrupt the market that way. There's usually at least one big, big claim, if not multiple claims. And I always think of it like, like a big flaw in a lot of pitch decks is people make the claim. So for example, our AI negotiation system will help you, um, you know, help you get, um, uh, you know, help you find better real estate prop- properties to buy, let's just say. Okay. So my big claim is that AI will help me close better deals and help me negotiate better. So, so a lot of times pitch decks, they make the claim, but then there's a, they don't back it up. And so the way I look at it, I say, okay, if that's true, that's the if. If that's true, I'm saying accept that it's true, that um, your technology does that. Well, then what else is going to be true that I'm going to look for in the pitch deck? For example, who on your team is an AI expert? Not, not just... I'm, I'm, you know, using the open source decks and libraries and Google and Amazon and stuff like that, but there's an actual researcher because um, it's, there's a big difference, right? So I'm looking for that. I'm also looking for an origin story. So, okay, you just said that you have this incredible negotiation tech. So there must be a, um, a lab or real world testing, you know, potentially months, if not years of iteration, like that Edison thing. How many filaments have you thrown away? There's going to be a, you know, there's going to be a workshop in Menlo Park, New Jersey, full of discarded bamboo filaments. So I'm looking for that. And I think a lot of people don't realize when they put their pitch deck together is that you've done the if, but then you just have all these gaps where it's like, hey, wait a minute. Um, why isn't there more of an origin story? And why isn't there maybe not a patent, but some other IP? Um, and I think it's a missed opportunity because if you actually had that tech, you'd be shouting from the rooftops that, hey, my co-founder used to work at this company or uh, did a PhD here. You know, um, we, um, I've got um, binders full of data that we trained our um, you know, machine learning, our neural network, whatever it is. Um, and that's in the appendix. I have a thousand pages of appendix if you want to look at that. That confidence that 
to back up that big if statement is often missing in pitch decks. And, and then, so what you get is like, we've got world beating AI slide one, slide two, here's our login screen. Here's what our product looks like on a Mac. Here's what our product, it works on mobile. Slide three, you know, it's like, wait a minute, those things have nothing to do with each other. If you had world beating tech, you would, you would say slide one, we have world beating tech. Slide two, um, here's where the science came from. Slide three, we proven it because we ran this against human negotiators. I'm just making this, this stuff up. We ran this against human negotiators and we beat, it's sort of like, you know, um, AI playing StarCraft. Um, and, you know, everything I learned about building companies, I learned playing StarCraft too. So, um, you know, the, the training of the uh, StarCraft uh, AI, it's the, the evidence is it beat every, every grandmaster, every pro player, and, mm-hmm. and it's open data. So if you had that AI, you would also have that other evidence. But if you right. didn't, you just said, hey, we've got a bot that can beat uh, all StarCraft players. Um, we haven't actually, we don't have any data. I don't have anyone on my team that's played StarCraft. And, um, you know, our website sucks. All of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, there's something, there's a big gap between the if and the that. Gotcha. Yeah, hopefully that paints a, a good picture and, and everybody's going home. And I think all we're doing is selling more StarCraft. <laughs> it's free. If, there's if, literally, if, you know, you know, seriously, <laughs> like, I think, um, um, like, yeah, Toby from Shopify, um, um, he's also a, a StarCraft. He's written about, you know, StarCraft and and how it's it's actually there's a lot of relevancy for founders about things like imperfect information, resource management, time focus. So it's definitely worth checking out. For sure. Um, and just kind of ending off, I want to touch a little bit on on these topics. I know, I know we were joking offline that, you know, these are one of your, I don't know if it's your favorite topics or your favorite topics to make fun of. But Talking about what we talked about, and I feel like you know what I'm talking about. Um, talking about what we were talking about in terms of pitching, now converting that to to working with banks or working with with grants. Yeah. Like I feel like the storytelling there is still evident, but it's more about financial storytelling, right? Um, I'm taking some guesses here, but like, what are your kind of thoughts on like? I guess the the first big hairy question is like, when should you invest versus when should you go non dilutive? Yeah. Um, and then secondly, presuming that non-dilutive is, a, is the right option or maybe a big, big combination, right? Um, yeah. How do you tell the same story, but in a different way so that, so that you know, you're working with banks and, and potentially grants or other programs properly? Yeah, I mean, listen, the, it is different for loans, right? So I think the, mm-hmm. the biggest challenge of raising debt is lack of knowledge. I think most people don't really understand how a lender sees you. And I could spend hours just talking about this, but... I can summarize it that you know a lender see unless they're a government loan and like or a mm-hmm. you know emergency um, a COVID loan kind of thing that's essentially a grant. But yep. you know a lender sees you as a future stream of cash flows, right? Because if you don't have cash flow, you can't pay back the loan, right? Nobody's going to loan you a million dollars and then have you pay pay it back through the million dollars, and at the end you have nothing left and you go bankrupt. So you know no matter what, there is a range, but you know, lenders see you as a stream of cash flow. So the answer there is, if you don't know, and or A, you don't have a stream of cash flow, or you don't know when the cash flow is coming, you're gonna have a very hard time raising debt. So all that means is that at the very beginning of your company, when you're pre-revenue, you know, don't, don't bother. Maybe credit cards and things that you personally uh, guarantee, but that's more like personal loan. It's different. Yeah. That's like guessing your mom for a loan. Um, yeah. Uh, so... So if you understand that when you have visibility into future cash flow, 
then you can start to borrow. And, and listen, different people like um, like a Clearco will let you borrow against as a royalty against e-commerce sales because those are predictable stream of cash. Um, a bank will do it based on your your let's say your your revenue or your profit or something like that. So you know we'll, we won't get into all, all the mechanics, but if you just understand that one thing is if you don't have visibility in your cash flow, it's not don't don't bother. Um, and it doesn't matter what your story is, right? They don't care about well one day I'm going to have this. Um, and they're not on your, they're not equity investors. So you can do an IPO and they're they're still making that $2 every time you go to the ATM. Like they're like happy to do that. Um, grants is different because some grants do function like loans where they are just looking at your stuff, like your financials. And, you know, like there's also some, a lot of government grants are, if you're a, a black entrepreneur, there's a certain loan for you or a woman, or if you're in Northern Ontario or you're in the Yukon and, and take advantage of all those things. Cause those are, they're taking advantage of things that are not just on your balance sheet or your, your PL. Um, but the, where the storytelling comes into play is that often grants, um, you know, any of these examples I just gave you, or it could be R&D grants or job creation grants, they, they, do, they do want to be sold a story about how are you going to grow? How are you going to, you know, really, it's a leap of faith, just like I said. The only difference is they're not participating in the upside if you do an IPO that you know, grants and governments, the way, the way to think about governments is what they care about is tax dollars. So if they give you money and you hire, then on the one hand, you think it's free money. Thank you very much. On the other hand, you're, you're, the money that they give you is going to payroll taxes, um, you know, GST, other consumption taxes. It's helping the economy. And you know, some, some study that said for every dollar in grant the government gives out, they get a dollar 40 back in, in net benefit. So Think about storytelling as mostly like job creation and economic development, right? So they might not understand your NFT story because I don't even understand it. But <laughs> but it's like, hey, but we need to hire you know fifty engineers. They really get that. Um, last thing I'll say about that is just like you know if I can do this rapid fire, like if you look at funding as a whole journey, right? At the beginning, number one is you have to have your own money. Like I hate to say this, but you know it is like. People who don't have some financial security have a hard time starting businesses. It's a, you know, it's a bad thing. I don't think it's good for innovation, but let me just say it. Like the, the statistics are if you come from a wealthier family or you have more personal funds, um, you're more likely to start a business. So therefore, that's your own funding, right? I don't like that situation, but that's just reality. Then what you need is, you know, that so that's your friends and family, and you know, you grab anything you can. You have this gap where you're probably not fundable by. Um, you know, angels or even an accelerator, like that's, you need to get over that gap. And it's mostly like personal credit cards, personal loans, mortgage on your house. It's not ideal, but that's how everyone does it. That's bootstrapping. If you can get through that in like three days or three months, amazing, right? If you need to do it for three years, it's going to, you're going to suffer. Next, you've got, you can go into an accelerator program where you might um, either you can pay for it and you get tons of great value for that. It's like school. You can give up a little bit of equity, get a little bit of, of money, um, but it's going to accelerate you as a person. So that's totally valid. Um, you might then raise angel money. This is all like that phase of you don't, you might not have even built a product yet, but this is why that pre-seed at early stage is so difficult is you need to get out there and, and pitch and, 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 and raise even from, from your customers. So unfortunately, at the very beginning, there's no loans, right? So it's going to be friends and family, accelerators, maybe some angels, 
and personal funds, uh, grants maybe here and there. But it's it's a tough period. It's the toughest period in, in a company. If you can get through that, then you have pre-seed funds, seed funds, venture, that whole game. Or you've got organic growth through um, slow and steady profits. Or um, you've got you start to open doors like, hey, I, I have half a million in revenue. I can now borrow probably a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? Maybe with a little bit of a personal guarantee. When I do that, then I can get some tax credits and some grants and, and you can do it organically as well. But it, the, the most difficult part is at the beginning. And I think a lot of people don't understand that at the very beginning, you're not going to be able to raise an A round. You're not going to be able to get a loan. It's you have to kind of go it alone as much as you can. And this is where I think accelerator type programs are really valuable because they can do, they can fill in a lot of, a lot of gaps that you're not going to be able to afford to do yourself. Sure. Hey, it's been a great hour talking to you, Raymond. Um, really appreciate your time and all the nuggets that you've dropped. Um, final, final question from me is, is um, just, you know, what types of companies are you working at, at hockey stick? Um, and how can, and what should people reach out to you for and how can they do that? Yeah. I mean, listen, we, we work with, like, we love working with like, you know, startup, like <laughs> pre-seed to series A companies. That's kind of our sweet spot because honestly, that's where the action is. That's where the innovation mm -hmm. is. And it's where I think we have the biggest impact. So, you know, if you're a company raising, definitely check out hockey stick. It's really easy to join. It's, it's either free. You can join for free or it's 50 bucks a month. So it's, it's not expensive. Um, I'd say that the, the, the top three things that, that we can, like I can do for you and in terms of um, answering your question about how to reach me is number one is like, you, you can download the book. It's free. I think we'll, um, Sam, you, you can, yep. I'll you already sure plug the links. You can read it, you know, you can give me feedback, you can love it you can hate it and give me a five-star review on Google, uh, go for it. Um, I also have an online course version of it, which just comes with a free hockey stick account. So that's another way that, you can get involved. And then I run a weekly um, live pitch coaching um, lab called Pitch Lab. We broadcast it live. Anyone can pitch. It's a lot of fun. And people use it to practice their pitch. But I think a lot of more and more founders use it to listen to other founders pitch when it's not like Dragon's Den or a VC pitch thing where honestly, you're not going to learn anything from that. You just want to get money. But I think our the Pitch Lab is really about we attack the process of pitching it's like a masterclass and, and I, I never see the pitches in advance. So it's a ton of fun for me and um, you're all welcome to join it's Tuesdays, 3 PM Eastern. Awesome. Terrific. And what's your, what's your Twitter or, or whatever? Oh, how, yeah. how can people well, find out all that information? Yeah. I'm a Ray look R A Y L U K on Twitter. Um, you can reach me on LinkedIn. It's probably the best way as well. It just, mm -hmm. just look me up on LinkedIn and, um, and uh, connect with me and I'll, uh, we can chat anytime. And pretty easy to reach. Awesome. Really appreciate your time, Raymond. Lots you. of lots of nuggets in here, like I mentioned. Um, and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Uh, appreciate everybody, and we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.